Well, while the kids are going out, I just want to say thanks to Rick for a very warm welcome again. Um, last time I was in Beijing, I got to have uh, coffee with Rick for about two hours. That felt like five minutes. And um, by the end of the time, I just was so uh, deeply encouraged. Uh, he and I used to have uh, regular get-togethers over coffee or lunch when I lived here. And it's been a while. We've moved, moved away for a while. And so I just thought, man, I don't know when I have ever, after a conversation, been so encouraged uh, by someone. Um, this is not putting out a shingle for you, Rick. You might get a lot of phone calls after this. But the next day, I was meditating on the book of Romans chapter 5, where it says that the love of God is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The love of God is not something that we, it's something we do choose. We have to choose to love. But we are made people, we're rewired as people by the Holy Spirit who can love. And this is the thing I saw with Rick. I think I emailed and told him that um, the love of God comes from him so, so clearly. And when you're in conversation with somebody and you walk away encouraged and you know that you've been so deeply loved and you are loved by that person. He asked me questions about people I shared with him about like seven, eight years ago um, that he remembered and still prays for. So... The love of God is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's not my message today, but I just thought about it when I saw Rick up here. I'm going to speak on one verse of Scripture this morning, John chapter 1, verse 14. Eugene Peterson translates it like this, uh, moving into the neighborhood. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us is the, the text I'm actually using. And I've been uh, in missions for quite a while. I went to Hong Kong in 2001. I was with YWAM for quite a few years and then pastored a church there. I've been in the Chinese world for more than half of my life, lived in Beijing for a while. And I would say that this is probably the key scripture for me as I have tried to walk into another culture and understand how to function. The word became flesh and made his dwelling. Among us, I remember moving to Beijing in 2007. Everything was new. I'd been in Hong Kong, but Beijing is not Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, you just, everything is new. You have to learn how to pay a bill. And I remember going to the bank and paying a bill, sitting there all day, trying to get the right documents, going back home and getting some more, and then paying that bill and just feeling so glad. It took me a day, but I paid the bill. And then I'd go back the next month to try to pay the bill, and the system had changed. And with my nascent Mandarin, I'm trying to figure out how to, <laughs> what the new system is. One time I actually went to pay my internet bill, and I sat in the office to pay it. I took a number, and I saw it was way, way low on the, you know, there's lots of people before me. Or, and um, I waited, waited, waited several hours, went out and got a haircut, came back, still waited for a few hours. Finally, just before the office closed, I brought my bill and went up to the window well, my number was called, and they said, did you bring your passport? I said, no, I didn't bring my passport. I didn't know I needed that to pay my internet bill. So when you move into a new place, there's a lot of things that can frustrate us. We don't know the lay of the land. And if we come like Jesus, the word became, became flesh, and like Rick mentioned earlier, in the meekness of Christ, we will have one perspective. But if we come from our cultural perspective into another land and bring that with us, we'll probably bring a perspective of pride. And we'll say things like, what's wrong with these people? What's wrong? Why can't they develop systems that actually work? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a hard thing to understand. I remember one time going to my local shopping mall and just going up to strangers and asking them if they could tell me what this means. The word became flesh. What do you think that means? Nobody had any idea. 
If you've been in the church for a long time, it's just become part of the lay of the land for us. We probably don't even reflect on this, this phrase, the word became flesh. It's very deep theology. So that's what I want to speak on this morning. And I want to make just two comments before I look more deeply into this verse. The reason Jesus came to the world was to make heaven, to make God known to us. He's called the final revelation of God. And it's because God is spirit, whose fingerprints we see everywhere, but whose fingers we do not see. We needed somebody with fingers and arms and legs and a mouth to really make him known to us. And second, even though Jesus came to reveal God to people, he and his words often remained a mystery to people because they needed the Spirit of God to help them understand it. Often, if you read the Gospel of John, where this text comes from, you'll see people scratching their heads. What in the world is he talking about? It's like me when I first started learning Mandarin. I don't understand you. Maybe it's because Jesus was so learned in the language of heaven. It was so natural in his relationship with the Father. And it was difficult for people whose minds were so deeply ingrained with the world to truly understand him. So we see Nicodemus, one of the smartest of the people of Jesus' day, scratching his head. What do you mean I have to be born again? Jesus said, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't even understand me? We hear the puzzlement of those in the desert who say, How, what's he talking about? How can he give us his flesh and his blood to eat? And then they decided to abandon him. A lot of people concluded he's raving mad. They wouldn't listen to him. And even his disciples couldn't understand him half the time. They followed him, they said, because you've got the words of eternal life. But I think secretly they were hoping there wouldn't be a final exam for them. Near the end of the story, near the end of the story of John, when Jesus gave his, gave his final and longest sermon, John chapter 13 to 17, the disciples said these words, John 16, 18, we don't understand what he's saying. I take a lot of comfort from that as a preacher. People often tell me the same thing. I'm like Christ in that. <laughs> so the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Very short phrase. I just want, to think about, I want us to think about three ideas from this, this phrase. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Number one, the Word. A few years ago, I returned, we moved back to Canada, and uh, one of my nieces approached me. She was a teenager at the time, and she lifted her fist slightly in the air, and she said to me, Word. And I didn't know at all how to respond to that. I've been living in Hong Kong for a long time. And then I also learned that you could say the phrase, word to your mother. <laughs> and this use of word was so completely foreign to me. But probably no more difficult than grasping John's use of the word. What is the word? Well, we all know, if we've been in church for a while, that the word is Jesus. But why didn't he just say something like, the Son of God became flesh? He begins his gospel with this very famous verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God. I want to just show you, this is a, actually uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, and it's actually uh, a little bit of a poem in the Greek language, and it's phrased, this is called a chiasm, when the middle part is uh, the, the central focus. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word, He was in the beginning with God. So that's how John begins his gospel, with this kind of low poetic expression. 
of something he wants, the way he wants to introduce Jesus. The word word is gr the Greek word logos. It's a big word in the Greek language, probably as big as the word golf is to many of the guys in this room. Logos was the basic principle of the universe for, the, for Greek people. It was the bottom line of everything. It was what hold, held everything together. So one of the Greek philosophers said it was like a dish that held the many candles of human thought. And it was also a big idea for Hebrew people like John. But people use words differently. Greek people use the word word in one way, and the Hebrew people would use the word word in another way. So we use words differently. If a British guy marries an American woman, and he compliments her by calling her homely, he's saying something nice to her. But for an American woman, what does it mean? She's not very good looking at all. She'd be better left at home. So we have to contextualize our speech. And for the Greeks, John here is contextualizing the gospel for another culture. Paul said about himself as a missionary, he made himself become all things for all people so that by some means he might save some. By all means he might save some. So John uses a term here that would make the Greek readers sit up and take notice. If he is writing to India, he might use karma. If he is writing to Muslim people, which there were not at the time, he might say something about the Hajj. But for first century Greek to understand what John was saying about Jesus, for them to understand the gospel in their frame of thought, they needed to understand logos. How does Jesus relate to the logos, the bottom line of everything in life? And so the lesson for the Greek reader here is something that we also need to remember. The word is Jesus. For the Greek, the word was a bunch of concepts. It was ideas, an idea that held life together, an idea that incorporated all other ideas. The Greek people loved concepts, and we who have been trained in Greek thought love concepts. But for us, as we enter, as we engage with this idea, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is a person. He's not a concept. Paul wrote that when we preach Christ as our wisdom, this would be foolishness to the Greeks. Jesus is the Word. We proclaim Christ as our wisdom. When Pontius Pilate asked Jesus the question, what is truth, what did Jesus say in response to him? He didn't give him an apologetic. He didn't point him to a book by Ravi Zacharias. He said, I am the truth. Augustine wrote in the 5th century that nobody has ever been argued into the kingdom of heaven. Arguments never lead to salvation. They'll come to faith because the Spirit of God enables them to see Christ for who He is with the eyes of their hearts. If you and I are ever called to suffer for our faith, it's not going to be a patchwork of theological arguments that, is going to, that will enable us to persist in our suffering and not deny Christ. It's because we deeply love the Word. We know Him. We know Jesus. We're willing to suffer if there's a person that we love, very few ideas we're suffering for, even dying for, but there's a person that we can suffer for. So for the Greek readers, they need to see that. The word is this person, Jesus. But for the Hebrews, the logos was also important. For the Hebrews, the word was the thing that proceeded from the mouth of God. It was what God spoke. 
Jesus once quoted Moses by saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. A take from Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. So in the beginning was the word, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. God spoke in Genesis 1. He turned the lights on, created the planets, let there be light. He put things in motion. And then in his word, as Rick said earlier, at the ultimate of creation, he created human beings to foster communion. Communication, the word in the Hebrew mind, is for the purpose of communion. Jesus is the word. He is God's communication for the sake of communion with him. We just have a new grandson, eight months old. Our first grandson, first grandchild, eight months old. And so we uh, get a picture or a video every day. Thank, thankfully, our kids are responsible in that way. Joy FaceTimed with little Noah this morning. Uh, and his parents, of course, Noah doesn't know how to use FaceTime yet, eight months. But uh, getting more and more responsive. And we're looking forward to that time when he's going to say his first word. What is it going to be? Is it going to be mama, papa, grandpa? What will be the first word that comes out of his mouth? And it means so much that he can talk. Why? Because it's another step in relationship. It means we can have a relationship with him. He identifies father, dad. He identifies mom, mom. He identifies grandma, grandpa. And then we establish this relationship based on what he knows. We, we use a lot of words to push people away and make ourselves feel better. But God uses words for relationship. Communication fosters communion. Jesus is the word, not so we could talk about him in church, but so that we could know him, just so that we could know him. He fosters communion. Remember when my son went in his, is in his first year of university, the teacher gave them an assignment, kind of a strange assignment, I thought, to choose their favorite word in the English language and write an essay about it. And I remember my, my son trying to choose between the words umbrella and manatee. It was all very random. It sounded like a Monty Python movie to me. But often we do something similar with the, the living word. Rather than engage with him and truly sit at his feet and listen to him, we dissect him in Bible studies. We talk about him. We define him. We relegate him to some compartment called the spiritual side of me. Karl Barth, the German theologian, said that the word became flesh and then theologians changed him back into words again. And it's our tendency. The Word became flesh so that we could know Him. So the Word, secondly, flesh. He became flesh. The Word became flesh. Uh, I've got a slide here for this. So you can see it in Greek. The Word became flesh. And I wrote an English phonetics of the Greek here. Have you ever seen two things that seemed together that seemed in completely incongruous? I remember when I brought Joy home for the first time, my, my brother Jim pulled me aside and he said, how did you get her? <laughs> Joy's sitting at the back. She's more beautiful than I deserve. He thought that an a beautiful girl was incongruous with me, his brother. The word flesh, logos, is right next to, in the Greek text, the word sarx for flesh. Sarx. Just that word even sounds kind of crude when you say it. Sarx. Sounds like something you might find between your toes or at the bottom of an old gym bag. Oh, there's some sarx down there. And for the Greek people, sarx was a crude term. 
It was the opposite of the Logos. It was flesh. Sarks would have nothing to do with Logos. The first thing with God was God, that's what the word was, has just come crashing down to earth. How can you say the Logos became Sarks? And for Greeks, this was like mixing two species completely at odds with each other. Like my dog Kimchi when we used to take care of her. She hated cats. Whenever we wanted to get rid of Kimchi or bugging us, we'd say the word cat, which she knew, and she'd run, look for the cat, because she hated cats. And that's what the John is doing here. He's putting Logos and Sarks together, opposites in one sentence, putting the Creator in league with His creation. He's saying the Creator became part of His creation. It was humbling for the Son of God to humble Himself, to be born into humanity, the entire experience proves the humility of God. The incarnation gives us a portrait into the heart of God. The manger, the poor parents, the continual arguments with people who hated him, betrayal from best friends, ultimately tortured and murdered in front of a crowd of people, humbling for anyone in the world. How much more for the Son of God, the Word, who was in the beginning with God and was God. He, he became flesh not to become something that he hated, but to become something that he loved so deeply. The Son of God loved his beloved creation. He loved us to draw us close to, the, to him who loves us most. The incarnation tells us something about God's price tags. You know, when you're a kid or you have kids and you have Play-Doh, it's a great little thing to play with, right? They can create something. And then it doesn't turn out, and they can just mash it all up and start all over again. Why didn't God do that with this creation? When we mess things up so badly and have con continued to mess things up so badly, why didn't he just flatten us and start all over again? He became like me, one church father said, so that I could become like him. God wanted us so much. He thought that we were this valuable that the creator became part of the creation. And the incarnation, God becoming flesh, the word becoming flesh, is the clearest way of telling every person in this room that we are immensely valuable. If you have today a struggle with your self-image, this should be your first lesson in therapy. There is no other starting point than this, that God says, because he became like us, that we are immensely valuable. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So finally, the third phrase, and dwelt among us. Literally means he pitched a tent among us. And for Old Testament readers of, this, of Israel, so who, people who knew Israel's story in the wilderness, it would bring to mind that time when they pitched the tent. And God actually lived in that tent in the wilderness with them. God dwelt in the midst of his people, a sinful people. That structure called the tabernacle. And he came near to people in kind of a physical way, nearly a physical way, but not really, in a glorious way. But now, through the Son, the Word has become flesh and pitched a tent among us in, in a very material way, a human being with other human beings. He pitched a tent among us. He pitched a tent among us. Imagine that. Jesus, in the middle of this sanctuary, pitching a tent among us. Jesus going to a bar in Shunyi and pitching a tent in that bar. Jesus going to a brothel in Shunyi and pitching a tent in that brothel. 
Jesus going into your neighborhood and pitching a tent in your neighborhood. Imagine that. I remember one summer I took two camping trips. One was by myself. I loaded my big heavy backpack of personal camping supplies and hiked up a mountain about six hours. And I was totally exhausted by the time I got there, but I did it. And I was rewarded with a couple of days of just being completely alone in a beautiful place north of Vancouver, lakes and mountains, all by myself, making my coffee in the morning, walk, taking long walks with my bear spray during the day. It was just beautiful. The second trip was one Joy, Joy and I took with our cat-hating dog, Kimchi, to another lake north of Vancouver, and we pitched a tent in that place. It was a drive-in campsite, also quite beautiful, but quite populated. And, and I remember this place, as comfort goes, it was kind of like a five-star hotel compared to the place I stayed up on the mountains by myself. But the beauty was spoiled for me by all the people who were there. There was one neighbor on one side who was blasting music all the time. Now, fortunately for me, the music was Fleetwood Mac, and I love Fleetwood Mac. So very loud Fleetwood Mac. I knew most of the songs. But on the other side, there was another car blasting their music of modern rap, uh, which I have no concept of. And then on the other side, these young couples showed up, and they were smoking pot for most of the time that we were there. So we had Fleetwood Mac and rap and pot odor coming in our tent. When Jesus came to pitch a tent among us, he didn't come to have a nice camping trip by himself. He situated himself in the midst of sinful humanity who are playing loud music and smoking pot, raising small kids. Jesus, people were not an inconvenience to Jesus. They were the reason that he came. He moved into the neighborhood. He came to people that needed him. So now we come to pitch a tent. All of you have moved to Beijing, as I did move to Beijing in 2007. From your culture, your home, where things are different here, all the frustrations of being in a culture, a place, and a language that's foreign. You've pitched your tent in this place. There's a million applications. Well, that might be an exaggeration. There's a lot of applications of this example of the incarnation. Some people have pitched a tent and chosen to live among the poor for Jesus' sake. Yesterday I was with a group of our, a couple of our guys who were doing a new church planting project in a migrant community north of the city, busy, dirty place. We decided to pitch a tent in that place for the sake of Jesus. All of you have pitched a tent in this place for a time. But you know, you haven't done this for career advancement or self-fulfillment. You haven't come to China for those reasons from God's eyes. You've come to portray Jesus, to be like him in this place. There's really two responses we make to the incarnation of Christ. First and most important, we look to Jesus and we worship him for humbling himself to become like us. We know God through him. That's by far the most important response we make to the, to the uh, incarnation. The second response is the challenging one to us personally, and that is we look like Jesus. We look to, to Jesus, and then we look like Jesus. As he continues his ministry through us in all the places he calls us to pitch our tent for our, however long he calls us to pitch it in that place.
This week I've had a few different <coughs> experiences. <coughs> On Tuesday I was in the hospital uh, with a brother who's dying of cancer. He died two days later. I came to Beijing on Thursday, and he died Thursday evening. So I had a final hour with him. I've been in the hospital lots with him the last two days. Uh, not a not a not a family brother, a church brother. And um, messy. I just can't can't. Oh, every time I'm in that kind of situation, I just realize again how deathy, how how, how messy is death. It is the messiest thing. And then when you've got other family issues that you're trying to sort out, it just complicates things even more. Jesus came to pitch a tent in that kind of environment. And he's given me the opportunity, as someone who's in him, to pitch my tent there in that hospital room. We'll have the funeral this week. Yesterday, getting to be up in that migrant community, uh, seeing those guys pitching a tent there. This morning, eating at a very nice hotel in Beijing, with these very wealthy people who had come with me from Hong Kong, pitching a tent with them for a while. It doesn't matter who they are. Jesus wants us to look like him in these places where he calls us to pitch our tent. I bet most people in this room have had I hate this place days in their time here. I had several. And whenever that idea, I hate this place, would come to my mind, the thing that has most helped me deal with that is this, this one phrase, the word became flesh. Because he did that, I can know him. I can look to him. And because he did that, I can look like him in the place that he's called me. Let's pray. Thank you, our Lord for giving us life and days. It's also short, but we thank you. And for the time that you've called us to be here in this place, all of us are here maybe for a day or two days or several years. We ask for grace to be able to look like you. Thank you for loving us so much. I ask you to bless this church family, continued unity, the fullness of your spirit, the ability to truly portray the life of Christ in the places that you call us to. And, and I ask that through Capital Community Church, more and more people in this city would get to see what Jesus is truly like. The Word became flesh. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.